Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah. That plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. I have to confess, we had a mock election and I did stand as a Tory candidate. <laughs> <laughs> Ken Loach is a Tory. You heard it here first. It didn't, it, it didn't last long. Today, Ken Loach is too left-wing for the Labour Party, but here he is recalling the first stirrings of an interest in politics from his grammar school days in Nuneaton. From there, he went to Oxford to train as a lawyer. That's what his dad wanted him to do, but Ken had other, more artistic career plans. He said, you'll never have two pennies to rub together. <laughs> Ken's work as an internationally renowned film director takes him all over the world, and home is now in the West Country. So, is he still at heart a Midlander? We'll find out in a minute. This is Made in the Midlands, an original commission by the Coventry UK City of Culture, hosted by Adrian Goldberg. Welcome to the podcast about that part of England which is further north than Watford and further south than Warrington. I'm on a one-man mission to promote the achievers and achievements of my part of the world. And each week I speak to a well-known Midlander about what their home place means to them. Episode 3 Ken Loach is a multi-award-winning film director who was born and raised in Nuneaton, Warwickshire. After that, he went to Oxford University before earning a living as a TV director and documentary maker. Ladies and gentlemen, please put your hands together for Ken Loach. Hi, Adrian. Hi, Ken. He requested that we record this episode in Coventry Cathedral, which we did in front of an audience of over 100 people. Now, Ken, I'm very keen to find out about your upbringing a few miles down the road in Nuneaton, but I want to start in this place, in this beautiful cathedral, because this is a place that does have some meaning for you. Yes. Um, thanks, Adrian. And it's always thrilling to be in this building and with the, the old cathedral next door. 
Um, no, you're right, Adrian. But one of my earliest memories, um, when I must have been four, four or four, I think, in 1940, my mother and I were in the Anderson shelter in next door's garden, and and the neighbour came in and said, they've destroyed the cathedral. And sorry, it still gets me. It is extraordinary. Um, and I remember that. I remember the word, the, 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 them saying that. And the smell of the night air. And the horror that, that people had for that. And of course, we knew there were many killed as well. I'm not religious, but I think the endeavors of people and the, the spiritual life that people have and that has gone on down the centuries and, and the history that the buildings contain is very moving and is very important and is central to who we are. I mean, the craftsmen, not only who built this, but who built the old cathedral, you know, the effort, the, the organization, the, the men who died building it probably, that it, it's redolent with who we are. In terms of identity and true to the theme of the Made in the Midlands podcast, mm -hmm. would you say that you're someone who has a Midlands identity? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I barely moved out of Nuneaton for 18, 19 years till I went to did national service. My dad worked at Alfred Herbert as an electrician uh, for 46 years. He was an electrician, electrical engineer, and and what I think is a real Midlands characteristic is a real respect for craft, the respect for skill, the enjoyment of the craft, I think is, is very much a Midlands characteristic. We don't take shortcuts traditionally at work. And the school I went to, in the, the grammar school in Nuneaton, had a, a wonderful history master, Sidney Reed Brett, and he carried that same rigor into his analysis of history. His system of notation, you'd have causes, you'd have root causes, you'd have immediate causes. Beneath that, you'd have one, two, three. Under that, you'd have A, B, C. And under that, you'd have Roman numerals, one, two, <laughs> dotted, three, one V for four. And you had to analyze your thoughts, you had to analyze what you were studying. And that rigor, I think, is a Midland characteristic. You know, we go to the root. He said, you know what a radish is? It's a vegetable you get from the root. And to be, really understand the world, you have to be radical, like the radish. Same word, go to the root. And that image of what it is to be rigorous just stuck with me ever since. And that clearly permeates your filmmaking and you still maintain close connections with your hometown of Nuneaton just so we're we're clear about this you're not just somebody who's swanned in today <laughs> to Coventry but you're a regular visitor still and have connections what can you remember about your your early life in Nuneaton um looking back my memories of Nuneaton are that it, it's diversity it was a proper town there were every kind of shop you wanted and when I go back now, that's, it's hollowed out. And that, that richness of a community that is self-sufficient has gone. I remember having 
my mum used sometimes to go to J.C. Smith's for a cup of tea and a cake, and the waitresses, you know, were black and white, proper waitresses gear. I think it was the department store that had a bacon counter with a man who would cut you, slice you the bacon. Um, it would be Parsons and Sherwin's, the hard hardware shop, the chemist, Eyelifts, I think it was Eyelifts, the chemist, Leaks, the, I think they're still Leaks, the jewelers. They, but they were people you knew who would give you advice and who would guide you through what you wanted to buy if you didn't know. It was a very identifiable community. I mean, it, it was a, a working class town, but a town with dignity and a town with kind of a sense of its own identity and proud of it, really. And when you say the town now has been hollowed out, what do you mean by that? Most of the big shops have closed um, as more and more shopping went online. But online shopping isolates people. And that sense of community, the, the town centre being somewhere where you met and met friends, and like the library where we always used to hang out as kids, that seems to have gone. You were raised on the team Nuneaton Borough. So just tell me about those memories. Evoke some of that oh, nostalgia, the if you would. Well, we lived in Manor Court Road, which was on the same street as the football club. Sadly, it's not there anymore. It was a few hundred yards from the borough. So I used to go there with my dad when I was about, must have been six years old, five, six years old. Though my dad worked away during the war. But I used to go there when I was very young. It was... Um, Again, I, I went with my dad and we, we sat in the stand because I was so small I wouldn't have seen I wouldn't have seen the game if we'd been standing on the on the roadside end, which was where a lot of the fans stood behind the goal. And I remember the a lot of the, the old blokes had a pipe. So it's the pipe smoke that used to evoke being at Nuneaton Borough. And we had a German goalkeeper as a prisoner of war during the war. And he played for the reserves, and I think he went on to play in the first team. And I was trying to remember his name, and it's just escaped me. And when he was playing in the reserves, I had an autograph book, and I walked around the ground behind the goal. And when they were up the other end, he gave me his autograph. <laughs> he gave me his autograph, and I was as pleased as punch by that. <laughs> People might know you these days as a supporter of Bath City. Yes. How, how do you explain that then? <laughs> well, I think it's important to support your local team because you want to go to the game. I mean, there's no point in following football if you don't go to the game, is there? You were of mining stock. Your family going back were miners in Bedworth, just up the road? Yes, yes. My grandfather was a, was a miner. Most of his sons were miners. Um, it was a family of 10 in Newtown Road, Bedworth. And the last surviving um, sibling died just a few years ago at over 100, Louis, um, in, in Bedworth. And I saw her just before she died. And would it be fair to say, especially in light of your, your work, that part of that identity, that Midlands identity, the mining identity, was a working class identity? It was. I mean, my mother's family were my grandfather on my mother's side was a tailor and he had a shop in just next to the old police station in Nuneaton opposite the town hall you know with the Corinthian pillars and then he moved to Queen's Road 
Opposite a fantastic old pub, which of course is no longer there, the King's Head, which was, I think was 17th century, very old, lovely pub, which of course had to be knocked down. So in a way, they were petty bourgeois, I guess, to be precise. And I didn't have a middle, a, an uneaten voice because my, they were from Gloucestershire and my mother's family were from Cheltenham. I've seen your dad described as a, a working-class Tory. I heard it said that he turned down a promotion because it would have meant receiving monthly paychecks rather than cash at the end of the week. Is that true? Uh, well, he was reluctant, yes. He liked, he liked his pay in the brown envelope every, every week. But he, in, towards the end of his life, he did, and he, he became in, in charge of the maintenance. But he was the perfect employee because he... He was absolutely loyal. He did. He worked seven days a week, seven days a week for maintenance because he had to work not only when the factory was going, but when it was shut, because there was some maintenance you could only do when the factory was closed. So he went in seven days a week, every morning at 6.30. Like a bus would come and pick him up every day, Saturday morning and Sunday morning. And then he, he got ill, um, with cancer just before he was due to retire. And then he died two or three years later and his pension stopped with him. So from the employer's point of view, he was the perfect employee, tragically for him. Your dad was a Daily Express reader. <laughs> How conscious were you growing up of, of politics? Um, I was conscious, yes, I was conscious. I mean, looking back, the straight imperialist propaganda from Beaverbrook. Yes, I mean, straight imperialism. And that came in. And I have to confess, cathedrals is where you confess, aren't they? I have to confess, in just after the war, we had a mock election and I did stand as a Tory. <laughs> Ken Loach as a Tory. You heard it here first. It, did, it, did, it didn't last long. In my, in, in, in ex, mayor culpa, but in expiation, it didn't last long. But I did hear Nye Bevan speak. He came to Nuneaton in the co-op hall, which was one of the few decent buildings in the town and where they used to have tea dances. And my mother and father thing met at a tea dance in the... Carpool, and um, that's gone now. It's where we did school plays for anybody who knows Nuneaton. And uh, talking of your school, then you went to. I know you went to grammar school as your secondary school. Tell me a little bit about your junior school. What, what place was the that? The junior school, this again is interesting, it comes from my mother's family who uh, wanted their grandchildren to go to the girls' sky school, had a preparatory school. So I was taken there. It was a strange experience because when I went to grammar school, of course I met kids who hadn't been there and it was, I realised what I'd missed actually. So um, you'd been to a, to a prep school, to a private yes. prep school? Yes, whether it was private or not, I don't know. But I think it may well have been. But it, it, was, um, it wasn't a broad experience. I mean, the, the teachers were um, ladies, substantial ladies, but I, I'd missed a lot. I'd missed a lot. And the kids who came, which was everyone else, when I joined the grammar school, had a much richer experience. And um, it was quick to adapt. 
but the, the, there was a sense of fun, you know, that that you'd you'd missed. And you were then a scholarship kid. Then you to you got into King Edward the Sixth, the grammar school. Uh, it, well, it was free. Oh, okay, the, the, but you had to pass the eleven plus. Yeah. Yes, it was yeah. eleven plus. Yeah, in nineteen forty-seven, that was. Mm. Yeah, I mean the great injustice of that was that in a town of what was the population and sixty, seventy thousand people, I suppose. There only sixty boys each year went to that, and sixty girls went to the girls' high school, which again was a free school and it was a state school. It was such a tiny minority. That was it. At age sixteen, you were going to leave. You didn't have a pathway to higher education. So it was 120 kids out of a big population were so unjust. For you, what kind of school was it, though? Was it a good education? Um, yes, and, the, and most of the masters had been in the war, and they, they, they had a, I mean, some of them had kind of a kind of approximate approach to education, you know, um, and, um, and the characters were very extraordinary. I mean, I've talked about the history teacher who was, I mean, I owe a lot to him. A lot. We did school plays, yeah. um, and I used to get into them if I if I could. Um, and I've, we did... I've got a note that you played a nymph in a school production of The Tempest. I was. I was. I was uh, aged yeah. eleven, <laughs> um, but it was taken very seriously. I mean, the idea of kids playing Shakespeare seems a bit ridiculous, and I know now the emphasis on write something yourself, describe your own experience. But I think that's good. But I think you miss something by not learning the lines because they stick with you forever. And you may not always understand them exactly. And I think they're enriching. Learning the great classics, whether it's Shakespeare or whatever, and learning uh, has a value. And I think it's sad if we don't do that now. And you were hooked, weren't you? The, you used to cycle from Nuneaton to the Royal Shakespeare Theatre in Stratford-upon-Avon to go and watch plays. That's how smitten you were with the theatre. <laughs> there were two or three of us who used to pedal from, um, from Nuneaton through, through Coventry to Kenworth, through that long road. You know, the, you see the, when you're at the top of it, it looks like the biggest valley in the world, but when you're in the, at the bottom, it's quite shallow. Uh, Gibbet Hill and cycle there, cycle through Warwick to Stratford. Yeah, I went through all the great names of the time, um, Gilgood, Olivier, Peggy Ashcroft, Michael Redgrave, great, great performances. And there was one, I went to see Tide Sandronicus once on my own, which was a very bloodthirsty play. I mean, I guess people will remember. And there's at one point, Vivian Lee was in it with Lawrence Olivier. And at one point, her tongue is cut out, ripped out. And they did it beautifully with, with obviously no, no fake blood, but just red, thin streamers falling from her mouth and it was horrific and to a I must have been what 17 16 17 something like that um, and I'd cycled all the way there and it was it been a hot day and I'd, I'd only got a standing room so I was standing at the back of the stalls um, and when she came on and her tongue had been ripped out and you could see the blood trailing and there was a, some really, I still remember some piercing music, high notes. And I fell over. <sighs> and 
the the uh, the people selling programs had to come round and pick me up and carry me out, <laughs> head between the knees in the foyer. And anyway, I got back for the last act. And um, but they were, they were extraordinary memories. The memories you have when you're young are the ones you refer back to all your life, you know. And so those memories of those plays and those performances, I just stay with you. Um, and I think the effort to get there made them memorable, in a way. That's an incredible memory from 70 years ago, Ken. <laughs> what do you think it was about the theatre then, that, of all things, that, that really attracted you? Well, it was extraordinary stories. It's the depth of emotional commitment. It's the fact that you are, you don't know what's going to happen next. You know, you don't know. And the excitement of that, and the depth of the experience, and the depth of the emotion, and the desperate feeling of pity, and the, or the laughter that you share, or the anger that you feel about what you see, and the, the, the beauty of the language. You know, just the beauty of the language. From a Warwickshire lad, <laughs> let's not forget, you know, you talk about the Midlands character, could you have it better, really? He's our Midlands character, isn't he? And it's not only precise, it's celebratory, it's understanding, it's enraging, it's compassionate, it's delicate, it's romantic. You know, my goodness, if, if that's the Midlands character, I'll settle for that. You're obviously smitten by the theatre. You're a bright lad doing well, and we'll talk about Oxford in a while. But your first job, I think, was in this city, in Coventry. Yes, amazingly. <laughs> um, when I think I must have been on holiday, and uh, when the Belgrade Theatre opened, and I got a job backstage, the opening production was a musical of the importance of being earnest. And dressing one of the main actors, singers in that, in fact, a bloke called Brian Johnson, was me. Um, ironing his trousers, <laughs> helping him into his, into his frock coat and um, enjoying all the backstage gossip that was going on. And there was quite a bit. There was quite a bit. Um, there, were, there, were, there were close relations with the, um, the visiting thespians of the Hippodrome and um, I had to be very discreet. But um, no, it was an insight into the, into the professional theatre that you don't get if you're just in the audience. After school, you did national service in the RAF. You went to Oxford. At what point did you become politically aware? Not at university. Not at university. I mean, I, I, I was a misspent youth um, putting on plays, really, which was extraordinary and, and uh, I mean a great education in itself but I, I was meant to study law but I didn't study a great deal of law sadly much to my father's despair because for a factory electrician in Nuneaton to have a son you know get into a university and that one he was very touched by that and he was massively disappointed that I didn't become a lawyer 
which I'm sure any parent now will understand. But the politics came later after I joined the BBC and was working on a, on a series called uh, The Wednesday Play. We were, we were doing contemporary fiction and the writers we worked with and the people who were engaged were looking at the world and trying to understand it. And this is where my memory of S. Reed Brett, the history teacher at the grammar school, came in. Because once you start to look at, the st at how society works, you have to ask the questions. And when you ask the questions, then the answers become all too apparent. And there's a, a stage by stage development to say, hey, this th things aren't right here. And I guess that's what led to politics. You must have reflected on your own sort of gilded progress to that stage then, really, hadn't you? The prep school, passing the 11 plus, getting to Oxford. Mm. How did you look back then on your own path to the BBC? Um, extraordinary fortune. I, I, I was just lucky, really, to be one of 60 boys in, in that town, to, to have the luck to, to be able to stay on. I mean, my dad, he won a scholarship to the grammar school when he was 11. And his mother said, I'm sorry, you can't go. We can't afford the uniform. And that would have been 1916. And he carried that disappointment all his life. That's why he was chuffed when I got in. And I guess that explains, though, why he was so keen for you to do well in the, the professional sphere, to yeah, go on yeah. and be a lawyer and have that yeah, yeah. kind of steady middle-class profession. Yes, yeah. And when I did law, that was his dream. And I'm afraid I shattered it, really. He said, you'll never have two pennies to rub together. <laughs> <laughs> Did he ever become reconciled with the career path that you chose? Yeah. When I got to the BBC, the BBC was class in those days. The BBC was respectable. And he lived long enough to see the, them go out nationally. Cathy Come Home, which got some notoriety. Some, it, was no, it was a national event, really, as it turned out. So, no, he... He was pleased with that, begrudgingly. He wouldn't say too much. Another Midlands characteristic, he never <laughs> said, well done, you know. He said, well, not, not, not too bad. Not too bad was the height. If you got not too bad, you know, wow, that was brilliant. But that supposedly misspent youth in Oxford was the reason that you ended up at the BBC, wasn't it? And you really steeped yourself in theatre by that time. Never mind the law, you were really into being an actor. Yes, well, when I left university, I tried to be an actor and, and direct as well. And um, I was the worst actor in England, I have to say, at the time, um, and spent most of my time as a supply teacher and put on school plays with the kids Talking about Cathy Come Home, that really set in train a very successful period in your career. I just want to reflect a little bit on the 1980s when you had several films censored. You had a play at the Royal Court that was scrapped 36 hours before it was due to be performed. You went through a pretty torrid time. Yes. And, yes. and yet you've come the other side of that. You know, you showed incredible resilience. But how was, how was that period when? Well, you couldn't get arrested, so yeah, to speak. Yeah, um, couldn't direct traffic, you're right. <laughs> um, well, I think, I mean, this was, 
the seventies we'd done BBC series, and we were running towards the end of that. The BBC didn't weren't interested. Um, I'd started to do documentaries at Central TV, but it was seventy nine. Margaret Thatcher was elected. Another Midlander. <laughs> we're not all good. <laughs> Unemployment went through the roof, up to over, over, well over three million. Factories were closed. There were laws against trade unions. Strikes were provoked, and it was a, a period of chaos and poverty and and real confrontation. And the broadcasters, typically as always, adopted the prevailing mood of the politicians. In fact, Channel 4 even advertised for right-wing producers. And the broadcasters became more right-wing. So, you know, for people who were of a different point of view, it was very hard to get work. One area was the documentary department at Central TV. People like John Pilger was working there um, and other good directors. And I got taken on. But we did a documentary about the steel strike they would not broadcast it. It was after it was over, they would not broadcast it until finally it went out midday on a Sunday. Do you feel optimistic then at 85 that the values you stand for, both as a filmmaker and as, a, as an activist, are now being listened to perhaps more than they were in the past? I think they exist and they're very present. The balance of power at the moment has swung very much against us while people are treated with such contempt at work, when people live in poverty, when the food banks are rising, and we know the, the desperate conflict at the heart of our society. So till that, until there is some social justice, we cannot, we cannot live in equilibrium. To round off the podcast, Ken, I did warn you, we would ask you for a, a favourite Midlands memory. A Midlands memory. Um, it's cycling round the lanes of Warwickshire um, and Leicestershire too, um, but Warwickshire in particular. I mean, there used to be two or three of us, and it was our courting, actually, when we were 14 and 15. The, the aim was that to find to two or three girls who'd come cycling with us. And we always ended up going up big hills. <laughs> and being out of breath at the top so any idea of romance went out the window but i used to take bad photographs of churches and put them in an album and that sense of the warwickshire landscape the countryside is is you know when i think of the midlands that's one of the strongest images that come to mind can you offer us a midlands hero Absolutely. And it's a choice because I used to come to, um, to go to Edgerton and watch the cricket. So it's either Tom Dollery or Eric Hollis. It's got to be. It's got to be. Tom Dollery, fantastic number four, first captain of Warwickshire, first professional captain. Wonderful, wonderful player. Got his autograph. But Eric Hollis from, uh, from the black country, um, great leg spinner. Nobody could spot his googly. And of course, famously, Bradman didn't in his last test. And our Eric got him. So um, um, Tom Dolly and Eric Hollis, no question. 
Lovely stuff. And uh, a Midlands masterpiece. This can be a place or a thing, an object. A Midlands masterpiece. Um, that's very difficult. I mean, I, my first thought are these two churches, really. I find this place really moving, and the old destroyed cathedral is, is extraordinary. So um, I, I didn't get beyond these two churches together. Um, be, but they, they do speak of hope. They do speak of hope, and um, tragedy and out of it hope, and I think we, we've got to hang on to that. And finally, briefly, your Midlands Manifesto. Midlands <laughs> Manifesto. Well, and briefly, well, it's... I mean, what, one of the sadnesses of the Midlands character is that we're not noted... I mean, yes, there were radical elements, and they're here in the 19th century and, and uh, across the country, and, and in Birmingham, certainly. But, you know, when you think of political radicalism, you think of Liverpool or the South Yorkshire or Manchester or the North East or, you know, South Wales. But the, the manifesto would be to look, really look with harsh reality at the destruction of our towns and our cities. The only way we can rectify this is collective action. We take ownership of it. We use our common wealth to build communities that serve our needs, not the needs of multinational companies. In terms of the centers of our cities, the small businesses that can thrive, the landscape of the countryside, which links to climate change, of course. So we're right at the heart, literally and metaphorically, of the struggle to survive for mankind. And to look at that, we have to use our collective strength, not, not be a cork on the waves of the free market, but collectively to take power and say, this is how we're going to have a future. Because if we don't, if we let ourselves just be a cork on the, on the moving tide, I worry for us. If we take collective power, then yes, we can solve things. Made in the Midlands is an original idea by Andrew Smith, who is also the producer. The researcher is Molly Davidson, and the executive producer is Richard Berry. Sound design is by Dan King, and the music is composed by Maya Miller-Lewis. That's me. We're all from the Midlands, like our host, Adrian Goldberg. Ladies and gentlemen, Ken Loach. Thanks, <laughs> Adrian. You can watch a version of this episode on the Coventry City of Culture YouTube channel. Ken Loach was lamenting the loss of shops who knew their customers in Nuneaton. In the next edition, an actor who grew up in his dance corner shop in Coventry. Nittinganatra had a lengthy stint on EastEnders, but his heart is back in the Midlands at the shop which is still the hub of the community. It's incredible because it's been there 40 years and I'm still stunned by the way my brother knows the name of every single person that comes into the shop. Why not subscribe to Made in the Midlands wherever you go to get your podcast to hear from Nitin and a host of other famous Midlanders. We'd also love to know about your own Midlands heroes. Email us at madeinthemidlands at loftusmedia.co.uk.
do share the podcast with anyone you think might enjoy it. And please leave us a review as well. It all helps to get us noticed. Made in the Midlands is an original commission by the Coventry UK City of Culture 2021. Proudly produced by Loftus Media. Thanks for listening. Ta-da! Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.